Hey, daters. Are you sick of small talk and no date being planned? Well, I'm excited to introduce you to First Rounds on Me, a revolutionary dating app designed for modern singles who are fed up with the frustrations of today's dating scene. The app is all about actually helping you plan dates and build genuine connections. How so? Well, the only way you match with someone is by planning a date. Send a date, a time, and a location, and then the rest is up to you. Ready to go on real dates? You can get one free month of their premium subscription with code DOCTOR, D-O-C-T-O-R. Download First Rounds on Me using the link in the show notes and start building meaningful connections offline. Hello and welcome to Reimagining Love. I'm Dr. Alexandra Solomon. Relationships have the power to wound us and the power to heal us. As a clinical psychologist, author, and professor at Northwestern University, I've devoted my life to studying intimate partnerships and family dynamics. On Reimagining Love, I'm here to translate complex clinical topics into tools and takeaways that you can use in your relationships today. If you're ready to develop relational self-awareness and create vibrant and loving relationships with the people who matter most to you, you've come to the right place. I'm so glad that you're here. This episode of Reimagining Love is brought to you by Dame Products. Dame is a female-founded brand creating beautiful and groundbreaking products to enhance pleasure. It should come as no surprise to you that I love their mission of helping people feel comfortable in their sexuality, worthy of feeling good, and connected to their partners. Dame vibrators are specifically designed for people with vulvas. Dame also makes lube, massage oil, and arousal serums that are body safe and designed to be used with Dame's vibrators to heighten pleasure. Their products are designed with the community of Dame Labs and with the consultation of a clinical board of sexologists, OBGYNs, and physical therapists. I look forward to being a part of the Dear Dame series as a featured expert in spring 2022. You can use offer code LOVEPOD, L-O-V-E-P-O-D, to get 10% off your first order at Dame Products. So head to dameproducts.com and start shopping today. Today, my good friend, Terry Cole, joins me on the show. I have been really looking forward to having her as a guest and sharing this conversation with you all. Terry Cole is a licensed psychotherapist, a global relationship and empowerment expert, and she's the author of Boundary Boss, the essential guide to talk true, be seen, and finally live free. Terry has this gift for making complex psychological concepts accessible and actionable so that her clients and her students achieve sustainable change. Terry reaches folks through her blog, her social media platform, her signature courses, and her popular podcast, The Terry Cole Show. Through her work and her book, Boundary Boss, Terry reminds us how crucial boundary setting is in the journey of loving others and loving ourselves. You know, a boundary defines the space between self and other, and a healthy boundary does two things at once. It both protects us and it connects us. Our relational self-awareness work is to identify 
what our rules of engagement are, and also to learn how to communicate them effectively to the people that we love. So today, Terry and I dig into two listener questions. One question is from a listener who has got some feelings about her boyfriend's friendship with his ex. And the other listener question is from somebody who is working so hard to break a pattern and make some new, healthy relationship choices. Although these topics are different, both of the questions really do call for boundary work. So who better to advise than Terry Cole herself? I hope that you love hearing and learning from her today. Hi, Terry. Hi, friend. How are you doing? <laughs> Good. I'm so glad you're here with me. This has been a long time coming, and I am just delighted to have you have you in my studio, my virtual studio. Right on, sister. I've got a lot of ground that I want to cover with you, but when we've got a guest expert here, I like to start with my favorite relational self-awareness question. So are you ready for it? I am. Terry, I would love for you to talk to us about a growing edge that you are currently working on in one of your important relationships and what it has been teaching you lately. I would say the growing edge is reconnecting or continuing to connect, but in a different way with my husband post-menopause. Hey, hey, okay. So that is an edge. What is it teaching me? Well, throughout the journey of menopause, what it taught me was that, oh, things change. <laughs> and oh, <laughs> yes, it can happen to you. And oh, nobody talks about what the changes actually are. So I've done a lot of research myself, and it took a while for me to talk to Vic, my husband, about what I was experiencing because I was having like painful sex experience, which had never happened in my life before, loss of libido. You know, I'm going to actually um, a specialist place. It's um, Female Sexual Health, the Maze Center in New York City, which is very helpful. And I learned so much, but that's happened over the past two years. And now the Growing Edge is sort of coming back into this in um, almost like a more, I don't know, appreciative way. Does that make yeah. sense? Where I'm really psyched that the pain is gone and that I'm happy to rediscover my husband sexually. Ugh. Terry, that is, it's so important. And I'm already thinking, okay, so when are you going to come back? And we will do an entire show about menopause because it's something that I have not explored in this space yet for reasons that have everything to do with me and my own integration and where I am on my journey. And I hear you naming such important parts about the struggle to turn towards Vic and talk to him about it, which I suspect every female listener right now who is approaching or moving through menopause, especially those who are partnered with men, that sense of like self-consciousness and tightness around it makes so much sense. It's so familiar. And it touches these edges like around the intersection of sexism and ageism, right? Like this, mm -hmm. rather than celebrating this incredible milestone that generations of women have gone through before us and generations of women will move through after us, it's something where we, because of sexism and ageism working together synergistically in all the most horrible ways, we go <laughs> silent, right? We go silent. We go into shame. What I want to say, though, about the shame piece, I'm in a marriage that I always had a healthy sex life. Even throughout the worst times, we could always come together in that way. 
And so I was very reticent to talk to Vic about what I was experiencing, which usually we share everything, but I didn't want him to take it personally. I didn't want him to feel like I was losing interest in him because I'm just as interested in him that as I've always been, which is extremely interested <laughs> in him. And so I would say there was probably a year where I was trying to manage this on my own and talking to other friends and talking to my GP and being like, what I'm reading is not that helpful. And of course he sense, you know, there's no way right. not to sense that something is shifting, especially if something is painful. And so finally, probably a year in, I was like, you know, I've kind of been experiencing these symptoms. And he's like, yeah, <laughs> I know because I can tell. And once it was much easier for me once we started talking about it more openly, because then he, of course, was not taking it personally. And he's like, Derek, don't, of course not. It's, it's fine. Whatever. How can I be a part of the solution? How can I support you? So it's a journey, but I do think talking about it openly, because I wished that there was somewhere. And when I did finally find mm -hmm. someone who actually ended up being a guest on my show, that is how I found what really helped me was through Dr. Betsheva Martin is her name, Marcus is her name. And she is an expert and has these centers that are just about female reproductive health. Mm. And that I learned so much from her and she's got a book. So anyway, you find it the way that you need to find it. But I think that I don't have shame mm -hmm. and I don't want to be ashamed. Right. Right. Like I'm not interested. This is normal. What I'm experiencing is normal. And I'm still a vital, sexual, sensual person. And so I just feel like we need to have a different conversation. So I am totally in to come back and just talk about it from soup to nuts with anyone who wants to talk about it, Alex. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so I suspect that there are ways in which silence and kind of toughing it out around menopause is an extension of what the research shows around female sexuality throughout our lives. There's not just an orgasm gap that we see in the literature, but a pain gap, right? Women are far more likely at any point in their development to persist through painful sex for all kinds of reasons that have to do with yeah. the difficulties really empowering us to feel fully authorized and entitled to pleasure, right? So if, if that's the kind of framework that we go into menopause with, it makes sense that we are at risk of kind of overriding and not honoring and pivoting around the ways in which, as you're saying, we don't, it's not Menopause is not a loss of sexuality. It's a reimagining of sexuality and an opportunity to, to stand differently and move differently with senses and bodies and emotions. But we can't get there until and unless we say it out loud, bring in the resources that we need and deserve. Absolutely. It also brings in, and we'll be talking about this, I know, later in the show, you know, what I would call high-functioning codependency. Uh, right, that there is an aspect of that if you are very high functioning to be in a situation where you can't source the answer to the problem, and the problem involves the most important person, at least for me, in my life. Where yeah. normally, you know, I never throw in the, the white flag, probably even when I should. So <laughs> there's something about. Wanting the other person to still be prioritizing the pleasure, the experience of the other person. 
And like you said, just muscling through whether it's painful, whether it's lack of desire or whatever. So there's a large conversation to be had for sure. Yep. Okay. So you brought up the C word, <laughs> codependence. I did. And you brought up not just codependence, but high functioning codependence. So for those, for, if you are listening to the show, and this is the first time you've heard of Grand Dame, Terry Cole, she is the author of a book. You know, our this episode is coming out basically on the one year anniversary of Boundary Boss. This is your book that it came out a year ago, Boundary Boss, The Essential Guide to Talk True, Be Seen, and Finally Live Free. And this book has been around, been in our world for a year now, and it is continuing to do so, so well and landing for people, affecting people around the world. So why? Why is this book landing so deeply? You know, it's interesting. It's such a universal experience for people who've been raised as women. And I'm not saying that men cannot be codependent. Of course they can. But the way that I talk about it and the way that I teach it and the way that I write about it, like we, we were raised, really raised and praised for being self-abandoning codependents. If you were raised in any kind of a culture that's like, be a good girl, turn that frown around, don't make waves, don't be a troublemaker. That's not ladylike. Right. That's not nobody's really encouraging you, especially when I was growing up. It was like niceness was like literally the highest virtue mm -hmm. that as long as people perceived you as being nice and being perceived as being nice was definitely not nearly as important as actually being nice. It mm -hmm. was like what it looked like. So the fact that we are prioritizing the needs, wants, desires of other people above our own sort of naturally, many people, women in particular, it makes total sense. So why I think the book is resonating so hardcore is that it doesn't matter where you live. I've taught this material to people in 192 countries. <laughs> Not once did anyone say, oh my gosh, I totally learned how to be a boundary boss growing up and in school and at home. Everyone is like, wow, this is all news. Wait, what? I have a choice. Mm -hmm. So I think that it, there's a universal experience that we have, but we're also at a tipping point of really being ready to give up those roles and, and really questioning the nobility of self-sacrificing. You know, how, how long and how much can you, quote unquote, take one for the team and still be who you're meant to be mm -hmm. in the world and still live you know, a fully embodied and fully expressed life because they are mutually exclusive. Mm -hmm. Say that last part again. That's so important. Yep. So there's no way that you can live a fully embodied and fully self-expressed life, like being self-determined, if you continue to have disordered boundaries. Mm -hmm. You just can't because mm -hmm. those things are mutually exclusive. Mm -hmm. Boundaries... And I, we'll talk about my definition of them, because I think that there is still so much confusion. Alexander, sure. so many people are like, if I have good boundaries, then I have to, I'm saying no all the time. Or they look at people who have a reputation for being like mean or bitchy. And they're like, oh, she's a boundary boss. I'm like, yeah, uh, no, she's not. She's a boundary bully. And they're not the same thing. Mm -hmm. So the name of the boss is the name of the book is boundary boss, because it means you're masterful at communication. 
making a simple request, letting people know your limits. You know, Alex, this all, this all came from my life experience of being a boundary disaster and then going into years and years and years of therapy, leaving entertainment. I'd been a talent agent for years, you know, negotiating contracts for supermodels, celebrities. I got out of that business because I was so blown away at how therapy allowed me and empowered me to change my life. So much so that at the height of that career, running a talent agency in New York that was bi-coastal, I literally left that <laughs> career and went to grad school, <laughs> much to the chagrin of my father and lots of other people who were like, sure. why? Uh -huh. You have the coolest job. You know supermodels. <laughs> and when my father said, why? I just want to know why. Uh -huh. And I said, because I'm not happy, Dad. And he's like, that sounds weird. I was like, well, that's okay. Uh -huh. I can value happiness and I don't need anything from you to do this. And, but I would love your support, which eventually he came around to supporting. But for me, becoming a psychotherapist, because I really was doing that in my other job, right? I didn't care about the Pantene deal. I couldn't wait to get someone into an eating disorder clinic. You know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. my whole thing was referring people to therapy. Once I opened my practice and once it was busy, I started seeing it over and over and over. And it was like this epidemic where it didn't matter what the presenting problem was that someone was coming in with. I could follow those dots backwards to the fact that they were not managing it well or that they were in pain about it because they did not have this essential skill set of boundaries. Mm -hmm. And I was like, wow, it isn't just me. And it isn't just like seven of my clients. It's literally all of my clients. Mm -hmm. And that was the beginning of me basically just taking copious notes about what were the similarities and what interventions therapeutically actually inspired sustainable change, mm -hmm. right? Because we can all change and change back, right? I'm a vegan, I'm not a vegan. But sustainable change is, that's the one that I was looking for, where mm -hmm. you learn something that you can continue to repeat, even though it is a discipline. And that was really the beginning. And then I started teaching about it because so Many people were asking, and I was so tired of, in a way, not tired, but you know, you're in your private practice saying like the same thing every yeah, day over right. and over. So I was creating exercises because mm -hmm. I knew I would have more people if this one person benefited from that exercise. And all of those things, this is what the book was born from. My, my life changing because I personally mastered boundaries and then teaching it to so many people and realizing how many more people, even if they couldn't afford to be in therapy with me, or even if they couldn't purchase a course of mine, that everyone has a right to this. So I wrote a book that then I did a huge campaign to get it into libraries so that even if someone couldn't afford to purchase the book, they mm. could still get the information. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like you're at a crossroads in your love life? Maybe you are sick of modern dating or wondering if the person that you're with is your person. Whatever your situation, I have the perfect podcast for you, Dateable. Dateable is your insider's look into modern dating, hosted by Julie Krafchick and Yue Shu. Julie and Yue bring a sense of humor to their insightful explorations of all things dating, turning matches into actual dates, the psychology of relationships, red flags, attachment styles, and so much more. 
I am proud to have been a guest on their podcast three times. So if you're looking for a great starting point, check out my latest episode with them when you're ready and they are not. I'll put a link at the bottom of the show notes. Wherever you start, this podcast is going to help you feel inspired to date differently and create a love life that works for you. Subscribe to Dateable wherever you get your podcasts. The word, when I think about you and I think about my relationship with you, the word that I come back to again and again is generosity. You are immensely generous. And that story of being so passionate about getting the book into libraries shows that. Your dedication to your podcast shows that. And the times when I have turned to you and said, hey, Terry, this is what I'm, I'm going to launch a podcast, like, you know, talk us through. And you are immensely generous with your wisdom that, that, and I hear, you know, in this conversation, I'm hearing how much, how grateful you are for the therapeutic care that you received, you know, in your life that actually led you to change your entire course of your career. And then really like hone your own journey, your own pain, your own struggle and transformation into something that others can also benefit from. Mm -hmm. Well, thanks for saying so. But it Mm -hmm. is true that Mm -hmm. my I'm so driven to I just don't think everyone has to go through everything that I went through to get this information. I think that it's worth it. You know, Deepak talks about Deepak Chopra talks about, you know, if you learn something in some painful way and that information you could share with others to lessen their suffering. Mm-hmm. Karmically, you should, mm-hmm. you know, and I want to, whether it's karmically, you know, it's really not a karma thing. It's just my desire is to spare others, you know, lessen suffering, increase joy. You know, I want to talk quickly, if I may, just about my definition of boundaries so that we're on the same page, Let's do that. Mm-hmm. which it's basically, I want people to think about their boundaries as your own personal rules of engagement, which lets other people know what's okay with you and what's not okay with you, which means you must know your own preferences, limits, and deal breakers, like your non-negotiables. And you must have the ability to clearly, transparently, and concisely communicate them if you so choose. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's a wonderful and inviting definition. It is the rules of engagement. The key word there is engagement, right? Boundaries are in the service of engagement, which is why you are insistent on distinguishing between a boundary boss, where engagement is invited and nurtured Mm -hmm. and nourished, and a boundary bully, where boundaries are weaponized. Yeah? Yes. And with boundary bullies... If it's like my way or the highway, if that's the way it is expressing itself, right? If that's how the dysfunction is coming, that is not having strong boundaries. That is having rigid boundaries. That Mm -hmm. is just as disordered as being a pushover or a peacekeeper or a chameleon when it comes to boundaries. I have a quiz, a free quiz. It's 13 questions that people can take and it'll give you your archetype. So it's just boundaryquiz.com. So it's easy to remember, boundaryquiz.com. And you will be able to see yourself mm-hmm. in those scenarios. And the answers to those 13 questions are, do you lean more towards when your boundaries are disordered, right? When you're out of balance, do they lean towards being more rigid where it's like, I'm doing it all for myself. If people disagree with what I'm doing, it, I'm doing it alone and I don't care. Not that open to other people's input or more on the porous, which is very malleable, 
side. And of course, healthy boundaries are the sweet spot right in between. But we all have our struggles, and so much of it has to do with how we were raised. So we each have a unique downloaded boundary blueprint, according to me, mm-hmm. that has to do with country, culture, family, familial norms of how is it, how open is the family system? Can people come in and out? How closed is the family system? Mm-hmm. Are you allowed to disagree with the family system or is it more like a group think type of a thing? All of those things, and these are all questions that you answer when you read the book because it's a book and a workbook sort of right in there because your disordered boundaries and my disordered boundaries will express themselves completely differently the same way you know, you're unique, like your fingerprints are unique. Your boundary blueprint is unique to you. And in most family systems, this paradigm of the way boundaries are supposed to be, right? This is an unconscious paradigm, how we make sense of, oh, this is how you relate in relationships. This is how friendships are supposed to be. This just gets handed down from generation Mm -hmm. to generation. And if it goes unrevealed or unlooked at, It just becomes your reality. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so what hopefully this book is doing for people is I'm walking you into the basement of your mind, holding your hand with a little headlamp on um, to find the material that you need to understand. You know, I always say like, I'm I'm nobody's guru, but I'm a damn good GPS (laughs) to help people get to the info they need. You know what I mean? Uh, Yeah, not a, uh, you're not a guru, but you're a damn good GPS. Let's take all of this into these two listener questions that are going to give us a chance, I think, to flesh out these ideas. So our first listener question comes from Regina uh, in California, and she uses she, her pronouns. So what she writes is, we're stuck. I've been dating my boyfriend for six months. He wants to maintain a friendly relationship with his ex-girlfriend. Text or call her, meet her for coffee sometimes, maybe once a month. He said it's totally over between them as far as romance, but he bonded with her after he dated her after his 23-year marriage. I'm also divorced after 19 years of marriage. We're both around 50 years old. Should this bother me? I'm uncomfortable and jealous, but he assures me they are strictly friends. And if he stopped talking to her, he feels like he's giving up a piece of himself and he feels like it's not fair. I'm stuck. So where do you, where do you want to start us off in this one? Okay. So these are like everything, boundary issues, I think. Mm -hmm. If we were sitting with this person, I would ask if he's given you any reason in the past six months to believe that he is untrustworthy. Do you have any evidence? He like makes a promise and doesn't keep it, says he'll call you, but doesn't do it. Does he keep his word? Does he remember what you say? Does he care about the way that you feel? Do you feel important to him? Because those answers would help me be able to make the distinction between is your boyfriend acting sketchy? Mm Mm-hmm. Or is what's happening for you really based on you? And another question I would have is, do you have a history of betrayal that might be influencing the way that you are relating to him about his ex? I mean, my, my stand on you being uncomfortable, right? You can make the boundary request, and you did. And he feels that he'll be losing something. And he wants you to trust him. This is what it sounds like. Mm-hmm. Um, my, I have another question about this. How would you feel if he brought you into the friendship? 
what if the three of you went to lunch at some point? Would that make you feel any different about it? So I feel like there's multiple ways of going. I definitely cannot tell you if it should or should not bother you. Right. What you're telling us is that it already is is bothering Mm -hmm. you. Mm -hmm. So the inquiry and the investigation is into why. Before Mm -hmm. you can make what I think would be a clear decision based on data, Mm -hmm. you need to understand why you're feeling, how you're feeling. Yeah. What you're doing in this answer so far and your in your reflection so far is you're refusing, and I think that we both ought to refuse to kind of come down on the side of she's right, this friendship should end, or he's right, she should chill out, right? And she's bringing mm-hmm. this as a concern and that it's an opportunity for inquiry as you're teasing apart. And some of that inquiry is into herself. What's her history here? And you've named potential like prior betrayals. I imagine that, you know, if the two of them are meeting up for lunch and stuff, there's sort of a a need for emotional intimacy there. And so I was wondering if for Regina, if in her family of origin, she was kind of highly parentified and she was one of her parents sort of confidants, then her template is like her love template is, if you love me, I'm your sun and moon, I'm your beginning and end. And so I wonder for her, if it feels confusing that this new partner you know, wants to source himself from multiple places. And if that feels somehow, you know, shameful for her, embarrassing for her, threatening for her. I was wondering also if her first husband, I would be curious if we were sitting here with Mm -hmm. Regina, I'd want to know about her first husband. Did he potentially source all of his emotional intimacy needs with Regina? And so now this new man feels really confusing. Like, what do you mean you need to go have lunch with somebody who's not me, right? That would feel actually (laughs) potentially confusing for her. Yep. Agreed. And I love your taking us into some, some thoughts about him that, you know, you really, you really want her to be looking at the actual data that she has about him. Is she seeing patterns of either inconsistency lack of transparency or ways in which maybe he's got, you know, he's, she's watching him in business getting sort of trampled on or struggling to say no, you know, with his family of origin. Like, is there some evidence there where she's extrapolating or intuiting? If you have a hard time putting up boundaries here, how the heck are you putting up boundaries in that friendship? So I think Mm -hmm. questions, inquiry, curiosity, kind of teasing apart, what is the origin of this discomfort she's having? Yep. I like it. I'm with you. You know, we're extrapolating a lot, but I was wondering also about this, you know, you you brought it up in terms of would it feel different if the three of them sometimes met up? And I do wonder what her projections and fantasies are about this woman who is her boyfriend's ex-girlfriend or her Mm -hmm. data, right? So I was wondering a bit about her, about what is it perhaps either about her, who she actually is, or about her fears about who this woman is that particularly might be activating for her. I was thinking about what do we want Regina to do? So we've identified that we want Regina to do some self-reflection. The other thing I want Regina to do, if I could have my druthers, the, the jealousy is perhaps a cover for something that maybe is more challenging to say, which is, holy shit, I love you. I'm so excited about this. It's really 
thrilling and terrifying to open up again after my own 19 year long mm-hmm. marriage. And so is the jealousy a bit easier for her to talk about versus the sort of, holy shit, I love you. And I'm really invested. And that means I'm really scared to lose you. Yep. Yeah, I, I definitely, that resonates as very possible for me. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. Wh- when you're saying it, I'm like, absolutely. Because it's easier to be jealous than it is to be that vulnerable. Yeah. And she's six months in, you know, and so that would be maybe what we'd want her to sit with. Mm-hmm. Okay, Regina, that's what we got for you on that one. <laughs> so let's move into this one. We're not going to use her name, but she also uses she, her pronouns, and she writes in from Switzerland. And she says, I have been in a relationship for three years and I have left four times, the last time at the end of November. I'm coming from a dysfunctional family with an alcoholic father who passed away two years ago because he couldn't help, he couldn't be helped with alcoholism. As a codependent, I always chose the wrong guys. And with my last partner, I constantly felt confused whether he was actually manipulating exposing narcissistic traits, and invalidating my emotions. Despite all that, I crave so much love. And as time passes by, I see more of the positives that we had shared. I miss him every day and I want to reach out. It feels like an addiction that I struggle to control myself, a constant battle. I can also foresee how all the things I left for would still be there if I go back and I would feel like I'm abandoning myself again. On many levels, I feel like I'm repeating my mom's story because this man has addiction issues and in my view consumes too much alcohol, which is one of the reasons why I left. How can I feel more grounded that I'm doing the right thing and just move on from the relationship? Well, I see you. Let's start with that. Yeah. From what you've shared with your family of origin, I think that the more you tend to your original injuries your childhood experiences that are still, I'd say, charged, some of them, the less compelled you will feel to repeat this pattern. In my experience, we can just talk it out or act it out. (laughs) So the more you talk Mm -hmm. it out, Mm -hmm. the less there'll be a need. Mm -hmm. You know, because it sounds like you're drawn, almost the way people are in trauma-bonded situations where it's like it grabs a hold of you and you're being drawn back in like the vortex. But from what you've written, you know where it's going to go. You know the end of this movie and it's not great. So I think more self-care, more therapy if you're in therapy or do more work, adult children of alcoholics, all of the experiences, there's a lot of um, support groups out there that can help you really look at these childhood experiences because that's what my, you know, my experience and my gut says that this is very much in that process. And we also Mm -hmm. sometimes have difficulty, quote unquote, doing better than our parents. Sometimes there's an unconscious sense of loyalty that if we repeat the mistakes of our, you know, maternal impactor, it's like it's a way to be close to her or not a way to outdo her. And it's almost like if you do better, are you are you judging them in some way? And all of this is unconscious, but I've seen it over and over again in my therapy practice. So that's just something to think about. Yes. Oh my gosh, you're highlighting so many really important themes here. The first one is that right, she she's not starting from square one here. She's connected a lot of these dots. She's naming 
the intergenerational legacies that she's bringing in, right? When she says, I'm afraid of playing out my mom's story. Okay, well, that's, that means she already has connected a couple of dots, right? She's got insight about what she has inherited from watching her mom do that. And as you're saying, the more we talk it out, the less we're at risk of acting it out. What I love is that she's got this access to this inner core knowing. She knows, right? She says, I know that if I go back, I'm abandoning myself. And I think what's so difficult when you grow up in a family of addiction is we have that inner core knowing, but when the system is addicted, we second guess. And we're like, well, reality must not be what it is because people aren't looking how they looked a few hours ago and we aren't talking about what's really going on here. So it's beautiful that that even though there's a part of her that is at risk of distorting because distorting is how she survived in an addictive family system, there's another part of her that's like, hello, like you've seen this movie, you know where we're going. We can spend months and years in therapy just helping people find that inner knowing, that felt sense. And so she's really so far along in this process. Absolutely. And when you think about it, it's not just like, "Mm, I'm pondering what's happening. Think about the energy, time, effort, and bandwidth it takes to leave a relationship four times. Mm-hmm. So she does know where this leads. She's, yeah. she's clear and she's given it the college try for sure. Yeah. Because four times is a lot of times. Four times is a lot of times. I think what it shows us is her deep, deep, deep sense of persistence and her ability to imagine different outcomes. Like I imagine, you know, for so many of us, our gifts and our wounds are next door neighbors. And so I imagine there are ways that in her life, that doggedness, I imagine is amazing and gets her all kinds of places and is part of however her gifts manifest in the world. And here around this relationship, it has been something that has 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 harmed her, right? That willingness to, okay, if I squint my eyes and tilt my head and do a little Mm -hmm. handstand, I can imagine perhaps it can go differently. Right. Mm-hmm. But but really, my, my uh, heartfelt wish for you is that you choose you. Mm-hmm. In her story as well, I was um, looking at the numbers here, right? She was with him for three years. She lost her dad two years ago. So a piece of this, mm-hmm. I wonder, is about grief and the fact that whatever partner she chooses next is going to be somebody who has never known her dad. And this man, this ex, knew her dad. And so I am just sitting with that element of grief that I wonder if part of what draws her back to this man is that he's somebody who knew her dad, who I'm sure at a deep cellular level reminds her in some ways of her dad, because he's a man who's not been able to heal his addiction like dad never could. And so there's that aspect of grief there. Which is powerful. If we were sitting here with her, I think we would want to understand a bit about her grief journey, right? What are, are there places, places she's yet to visit around her grief journey? Anger at her dad that he was never Mm -hmm. able to move from addiction, uh, heartbreak, right? That he, that Mm -hmm. she lost him to addiction and are there ways that she's not touched those spaces and that that perhaps is part of what keeps her stuck, right? Unhealed, untended, unaddressed grief will take us to all kinds of places. So when she asks, how can I be more grounded? 
what you, one of the things that you said was self-care. And I would want for her, one of her self-care practices, much like we would have a self-care practice for anybody who's recovering from an addiction, I want her to have a, de- a practice of devotion to the small. And one of the smalls might just be, mm-hmm. I went this entire day and did not reach out to my ex. And then the next day, I went mm-hmm. this entire day without reaching out to my ex. And is there a way she can create ritual around that, right? Around these little milestones that she's going to hit every day that she chooses herself. If we're hard on ourselves, if we've kind of overridden grief, we lose sight of our victories and our wins and the the ways in which we are breaking and, tra- and transforming generational patterns. So I would want her and the people in her corner every single day to be like, holy shit, you went the whole day and you didn't. Sure, you had urges. Sure, you thought about him, but you didn't do it. What are the daily practices that she's replacing? What are the ways that she's caring for herself, which is potentially really challenging, right? She likely has been codependent and focusing on him. How is he doing today? Has he started to drink? Will he drink? If my mood is mm-hmm. this way, he's more likely to drink if my mood is this way. So that focusing on him has, has means that she really just has potentially not developed the skill of turning mm-hmm. the spotlight onto herself, of, of focusing on her mood, her energy, her desires, her interests. Yeah. And just doing things that make you actually feel good. What would fill up your bucket? Might just be a luxurious tub. Might just be a walk in nature. But just that thought pattern shifting from outward focus to inward focus, that will change your life. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned recovery communities like adult children of alcoholics. So we want her in community. Absolutely. Why do we imagine that community will supercharge this process for her? Oh, it's so incredibly important. When, when we are struggling so much of the time, we just feel like it's only me. There's something wrong with me. I'm the only one who's doing this. I'm ashamed. Mm-hmm. You know, when people know we're with someone who has an addiction issue or someone who our friends think we should leave or our family doesn't like or whatever it is, there's shame. When you go into a community of other people, who have similar experiences to you, it really, we're, we're not um, silencing or hiding the shame. We're sharing. And once you put that light, it's like opening the shades and opening the windows and letting the sun shine into this. It doesn't nearly have the power that it had over you because you know there's nothing wrong with you. Meaning, You responded to the situation that you were raised into. This is what you learned. And can you learn something different? Well, yes, you can. Mm -hmm. But when you are in community with many, many, many other people who have a similar experience, you're like, oh, there's lots of people like me. And it's just, we all have our cross to bear. Whether it's an addicted family system, whether it's difficulty, whether it's abuse, whether it's too high of expectations, whether it's being controlled with money. I mean, there's... There's a million dysfunctional ways that families interact. And our families of origin, I hate to say it's like going back to the scene of the crime, as I like to say, but it kind (laughs) of is. You know, (laughs) we've all gotten something from it. But when you find your crew of like-minded folks, it is so liberating. They start to then carry 
her story inside of them. Like I'm thinking about this, my community, my women's community I've been part of for, I think we're at eight years, right? And so when we gather together and when I declare that I would like to do some work tonight and I do my work in the witnessing circle of my women's community, they can say, that reminds me of, remember years ago when this happened and they become the bearers of your, the carriers of your story as well. And they can highlight, look what you did. Six months ago, you wouldn't have done it that way. A year ago, you wouldn't have done it that way. So yeah, that power of that community Because as you're saying, we're wounded in our relationships. We therefore heal in our relationships. So we want her to be in community, to dismantle that shame, to have eyes reflecting back to her, like, look at what you're doing. Mm -hmm. It's so important. I mean, this is the subtitle of the book for a reason. The Essential Guide to Talk True, Be Seen. Be Seen. And finally, Live Free. Be Seen. Because being seen is so important in life. And when we are not telling the truth about how we feel, when we are not sharing authentically what is going on with us, we are not only not being seen, we are being seen inaccurately. Like we are literally being misseen, if that is such a thing. So it's so painful. It's so, I mean, it creates so much existential loneliness to be the erection of this false self that can be so grand with all the lights and all the stuff where really the true self is behind there, but it's not satisfying, right? It's not satisfying. And eventually we really need to be seen. <laughs> we really do. You will, yeah. you will find a way to be seen. So if you find your community, it is exactly what's done. Just like you were talking about with your women's circle. Yeah. She gets to show up as messy and struggling and, all of it or successful. Cause you know, the other, I want to, I really do want us to go back to what you were talking about, about the invisible legacies with this example, because that is something that gets missed. She writes it. She says, I'm, I'm living my mom's story. And so what you were introducing is family therapist, Ivan Bojermani Naj, right? That was yep. his invisible loyalties. This idea mm-hmm. that we, it is really, really threatening to go someplace that our parents weren't able to go, to live more freely than our parents were able to live. And so when we reach that outer edge and we start to get closer to breaking through something that we've not seen anyone in our family break through, we can self-sabotage because it's really scary and we don't even know that we're doing it. (laughs) And it's important to acknowledge because I think we miss it. We miss it. We just see ourselves blowing something up But we don't know why, right? Yeah. I created the secondary gain questions. Of course, secondary gain is a concept in in the work that we do. But I have this little tool that people can use. If you find yourself blowing something up and being like, what the hell, why? Or really, if you find yourself stuck, staying stuck in a situation, it could be self-sabotaging behavior. I say, I'm not going to drink during the week, but then I keep drinking during the week. I had a client who during the pandemic was like, okay, I want you to hold me accountable. I want to stop drinking during the week. I'm going to do it. And then three weeks in a row, she only made it Monday night. And by Tuesday night, she drank and she was having all this guilt and all this shame. And when we finally talked on the next week, I was like, listen, let's talk about, because you are an incredibly capable person. And and she did not have um, a history of real addiction. Like I had not seen it before. And I said to her, let's just ask the secondary gain questions and let's see what's revealed. 
What do you get to not face, not feel, or not experience by continuing to drink during the week? And she immediately said, I get to not face the state of my marriage. Well, we should be talking about the state of your marriage instead of your shame around not being able to not drink on Tuesday. (laughs) Like, that's right. right. It was this distraction pain taking us away from the actual thing. So I also feel like our, our person in Switzerland, you can ask yourself, what do I get to not face, not feel, not experience <sighs> by going back to sure. this person? Sure. And maybe it's not being vulnerable to others. Maybe it's not having to try to have a relationship that you don't feel like you have the skills to have with someone else. This mm-hmm. is familiar. So it's like the devil you do know. So there's lots to, you know, that will help you in the inquiry, I think. That's right. Oh, all right. Well, I'm going to move us towards wrapping up. But I want to thank Regina and California and the Reimagining Love listener in Switzerland for writing these questions that are so thoughtful and so exactly in your wheelhouse, Terry. They were really (laughs) rich, rich to talk through with you. I loved our back and forth, and I feel really confident that both Regina and the woman in Switzerland are going to have some new tools and some new perspectives to bring to these situations. Right on. Okay, so you are a treasure trove of additional resources. I imagine that I suspect a lot of folks here already know you, and this conversation is just like a reminder of why they love you and turn to you and trust you. For folks who are new, we will certainly link Boundary Boss in the show notes. We will link the Boundaries Quiz in the show notes. What's the best sort of learning pathway for people who are perhaps beginning their journey with you? Well, I think before you do the learning thing, do take the quiz at BoundaryQuiz.com because that will help you get a baseline of where you are when it comes to boundaries and communication. So that's one thing. But TerryCole.com, just go to my website. And I am a treasure trove of (laughs) free material, that is for sure. So it's sort of broken down on the website to help you if you're looking for, if you're involved with a narcissist, watch these. If you're, you know, need boundaries, if it's this. So there's a whole bunch of categories that you can find. I hang out mostly like you on Instagram. Mm -hmm. So it's just at Terry Cole. Um, I have a podcast that you have been on my podcast before. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, It's the Terry Cole show that I've had for seven years. So Hmm. there is many episodes of that out there, just anywhere you get your podcast. And I also have a YouTube channel and it's Real Love Revolution with Terry Cole. But if you just search my name on YouTube, you'll find it with, I don't know, I probably have 400 videos and all kinds of exercises that go with each video. So, you know, if you really want to get on this healing path in a different way, and you definitely do because you wouldn't be listening to this podcast if you didn't, there's such an array of things. And if you do get the book, you can go to BoundaryBossBook.com and there's still all of the bonuses. I think you're supposed to stop giving them at some point. And I was like, <laughs> that's not really on brand for me. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> this was so fun, Alex. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate you. I'm so glad that you were here. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Terry, for joining me on the show. In the show notes, you will find links to connect with Terry's work, including her free boundary quiz, which you can access.